This week on the show, we cover differences between base and ports LLVM in OpenBSD, the netgraph for FreeBSD's Beehive networking, how to set up audio on FreeBSD as a quick guide, FreeBSD's legend starting at 1.0 and what's behind that, Hacker News running FreeBSD, TrueNAS 13, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 463, the 1.0 legend, recorded on the 29th of June, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Heuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Hey, we have headlines this week, just like last week and probably next week as well. But this one is always unique every week uh this one is of <laughs> course well it, it makes sense when you think about it yeah yeah no, uh, it's good i like i like the rhyme better yeah uh, I, this week I come up this <laughs> i come up with this stuff on the spot you know yeah, i can't the, think dynamic 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 man. yeah Th- this week uh we're starting with an article from a frequent uh contributor something we cover a lot on bsd now uh frederick canvas at canvas.net oh yeah and Frederick was writing about the differences between base and ports LLVM in OpenBSD. LLVM was imported in OpenBSD port street back in 2008 and happily lived there for a long time while before being imported in the source tree at the G2K16 hackathon in 2016. I previously wrote about this in the state of toolchains in OpenBSD last year. As mentioned in my previous article, we do not use upstream build systems to build LLVM in the base system, but handwritten BSD make files. Importing CMake into the base system was not an option because of the size of the project and the large dependency trim it requires for building. As a drawback, the build is slower than it could be. Uh, we were able to take advantage of a more modern build system. Nowadays, Clang is a default compiler on AMD64, ARM64, ARMv7, i386, Mac PPC, Octeon, PowerPC64, and RISC-V, RISC-5 64 platforms. It is also available in the Spark 64 base system. But then why do we still need LLVM in the port stream? As an aside, for those wondering why we need a compiler in base system in the first place, Giulio Marino, who, who we were about last week, uh, Giulio Marino wrote about this in his compilers in the BSD base system post. We really need more people blogging about BSD. Um, these are great, but we need more of you. Uh, in the OpenBSD base system, we build we only build LVM backends for a given architecture. So on AMD64 and i386, we build LVM's x86 backend. The mapping we do between OpenBSD's machine arch and LLVM arch values can be find in found in GNU user bin clang makefile.arch. Note that we also build the AMD GPU backend on platforms requiring it. On an AMD64 machine, the registered targets for the base compiler are, uh, and then he runs clang dash dash print targets, and it includes AMD GCN, which is GPUs, uh, R600, X86, X86-64. And the ones for clang uh, installed from ports are uh, AR64, AR64-32, AR64-BE, AMD GCN, ARM, ARM64, ARM64-32, uh, ARM EB, AVR, BPF, BPF EB, BPF EL, Hexagon, 
uh, Lina A, MIPS, MIPS64, MIPS64EL. There's a long list. The Devil LLVM port is built using CMake and Ninja, resulting in more efficient builds. On top of building all the available LLVM backends, we also built the Clang Static Analyzer and its companion tool Scan Build. That's a shame. That means it must not be available on the OpenBSD base system. That's a great tool. Uh, Clang Utilities, Clang Format, and Clang Hyphen Star Tools. LLVM Utilities, LLVM Binary Tools, LLVM AR, LLVM AS, LLVM Object Copy, LLVM Object Dump, etc. Tools to process code coverage data, LLVM Prof Data, and LLVM Cov. Various other tools such as LLC, LLI, it's like you're naming Max from the 90s, LLVM-MC, LLVM-MCA, etc. So in essence, we tried to keep the base system LLVM somewhat minimal and build additional features and tooling in the port version. This solution has worked well for us so far. One last thing to note, we only build one version of LLVM in ports, which is kept in sync with the base version, so we do not ship packages for older or newer versions of LLVM. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool, good overview, and making sure that everyone knows what base is versus ports LLVM. Next up, we have another Clara article. Always good to read those. Using NetGraph for FreeBSD's Beehive networking is this time. And do you know the author of this one? I usually miss those. No, I don't think it's listed. Uh, okay. Anyway, um, FreeBSD's Beehive hypervisor offers support for virtual network connections. And beginning with FreeBSD 13, Beehive also supports a NetGraph backend for its virtual network devices. Ooh. So what's NetGraph, you ask? NetGraph is a highly performant or high performance modular networking framework that has been a part of FreeBSD for more than 20 years since FreeBSD's 3.4 release in 1999 to be exact. Uh, NetGraph's modular design allows for arbitrary stacking of protocols and transports along with features such as filtering, tunneling, redirection, inspection and injection. Essentially, NetGraph is to networking what the geom layer is to disks and storage, with consumers including FreeBSD's Bluetooth subsystem and PPP dial-up networking stack. And despite its long history and its rich feature set, NetGraph is often overlooked. Much of the documentation is at the level of individual modules rather than guided step-by-step -step instructions to build a complete solution to common problems. The example we present in this article is a basic recipe. Well, recipe recipe which demonstrates such common netgraph syntax and use cases so here's a section on beehive networking first although it may be possible to use pci pass-through to make a physical network card available to a virtual machine that approach is neither convenient nor scalable it is typically easier and more sensible to use beehive's built-in network stack to provide a completely virtual network device for the guest operating system okay uh, and here's a uh, Bold printed part, from the perspective of the host system, the only choice of backend for this network device before FreeBSD 13 was TAP, also known as VMNet, uh, which creates TAP virtual network interface on the host system, which can be configured like any other network interface. So once an IP address is allocated to the TAP adapter, you can enable routing of packets between it and another network. In many cases, the simplest option is to use a bridge to join it with the host's primary network interface. The tab adapter can then be passed down to the guest operating system, allowing it to have an address on the same subnet as the rest of your network. And there's a separate article linked uh, also by Clara System or on Clara System's website about how to virtualize your network on FreeBSD with VNet. Uh, but this is not part of this article here. A NetGraph bridge is next. A NetGraph system consists of nodes joined together with edges to form a graph. That's why the module is called NetGraph. 
uh, data packets from or flow from one node to another with each node performing a single task. NetGraph also supports control messages that are passed directly between the nodes. Each node is an instant of a specific node type. The type defines what hooks the node supports, what the node does with data received from each hook, and what control messages it understands. The one common approach for doing bridging with NetGraph is to use a modified copy of the script in user share examples NetGraph Ether.bridge, but that only works for bridging local interfaces, so we'll break down the individual commands used in that script. First, you must load the relevant kernel modules. So that's a KLD load. Uh, uh, there's two of them, ng underscore ether and ng underscore bridge. So ng stands for netgraph. And uh, you now need to identify the physical network interface that you want to bridge to the virtual machine. To run that, you can if config dash a to list the network interfaces, and which might list also interfaces for all sorts of things like Wi-Fi, link aggregation, VLANs, and so on. But on desktop here, they used a side from LO0 for loopback, they just had RE0, and that's what they'll use in this example. Okay, the naming here indicates which driver is used. By looking at the RE man page, they can see it's a driver for real tech hardware. And now controlling NetGraph is done with the ng control, ng, ngctl command. And you can just do ngctl list, which you uh, then get two results back, two nodes, RE0 and the ngctl uh, 13418. Uh, the first one is an Ethernet type, and the second one is a socket type. Ah. Next, we use the ngctl mkpeer command to create a bridge. The bridge is created as a peer of the existing RE0 node, and as a connection is made from the lower hook on that to the link 0 hook on the bridge. So that's ngctl mkpeer, make peer, RE0 colon bridge lower link 0. We now have an unnamed node of type bridge. You can refer to this unnamed node via the hook as RE0 colon lower, but it's better practice to give it a proper name. This name can be anything, but we'll use bnet0 here. So ngctl name re0 colon lower, and then the name is bnet0. Okay. Often both the lower and upper hooks on the end or the ether node need to be connected to the bridge. The lower hook got connected as part of the creation and connecting it first avoided any temporary loss of connectivity. The upper hook only needs to be connected in the case of interfaces that the hook is using itself. The command to connect is as follows, ngctl connect re0 colon bnet0 colon upper link 1. Finally, we need to send a couple of control messages to the ether node. First, we enable promiscuous mode to ensure that the interface will pick up all network packets, not just packets destined for it. And without initials, uh, the permissions mode enabled, the host would reject all the packets destined for the virtual interfaces or the virtual machines. The second control message tells it to not to overwrite the source address on packets. So no nothing here. Uh, ngctl msg re0 colon set promisc1. And the second one is similar, but you use set auto source to zero. Okay, so there's a couple of con uh, things to set there. But then uh, it gets to the beehive part. Uh, bringing a beehive guest up manually typically involves passing a lot of different options. A network is handled as a virtual PCI device with the option dash S. And then they provide the whole beehive command line. If you've ever configured beehive on the command line, uh, it's uh, at least three line of uh, input. Uh, but you can also have this in a script, of course, and run it this way. And the important line here is the dash S. So this is our virtual net and that references tab zero.
Uh, and now we can use the net graph bridge we just created. We would replace the segment of the command with uh, not tab zero, but referencing our bnet zero colon. And we also provide peer hook equals link two. Then this is a reference to the uh, socket, if I'm not mistaken. So you can also do uh, with uh, net graph, uh, things I like to do and teach to students, uh, dot graphs. So the graph utility has a command line that can visualize these graphs in the net graph here. And it uh, is supported by ngctl. There's an ngctl dot command and you can paste or pipe that directly to the dot tool, to the net graph or to GraphWiz tool and print out the resulting network that you are building at the ngctl net graph. And that gets visualized as a PNG in this case. And you can uh, see actually what is being built and what connects to what. That's kind of cool. Of course, you can not only create bridges that you can connect to Beehive, you can also uh, directly cover or directly connect to the lower hook of an Ethan type interface, for example. Then there's a section on performance for benchmarking. They ran a basic test using iperf3. Oh, that was the tool I was, uh, I was in a colloquium the other day and I, it was about networking and uh, I wanted to be smart and mention iperf. Why didn't you use iperf3? But I couldn't remember the name. Okay, um, side note, I'm stupid. Um, anyway, <laughs> now I remember it's too late. Um, student passed nevertheless. So <laughs> for benchmarking, they ran a basic test using iperf3. This reported around 6.5 gigabits per second. Wow, for tap with if underscore bridge and 7.5 gigabits per second with the direct net graph connection at ng bridge. Combining a tap adapter with ng bridge resulted in a slower connection at around 3.5 gigabits per second. Uh, this is a fairly rudimentary test. So if performance is crucial, it's better to do your own benchmarking in a network environment and with a workload which better models your own. And at the end, there's a small section about managing Beehive VMs, which covers Beehive management utilities like CBSD, IOHive, VM Beehive, or Chives, I'm not sure, or Seahives. Uh, there's a couple of um, projects that revolve around making it easier to use rather than writing three lines of uh, input to the Beehive command line utility. Anyway, uh, they provide a couple of articles uh, for learning more about NetGraph and its modules in the uh, additional resources section as well as a couple of talks people have given at various conferences like Asia BSD Conf. Do, do you ever use Beehive, Benedict? I do, I yes. Beehive, NetGraph. No, oh, NetGraph, Netgraph never. Netgraph. Uh, I always wanted no. to. Is there a good section in the handbook about that? Because that's where I typically I mean, start. Uh, this, this article seems quite good. Yeah, it's a good start. <laughs> Especially I like the, uh, I, the, the dot part that you can visualize this at the, at the, at the end. Yeah. I've I've only ever used NetGraph for set up Bluetooth. Mm. <laughs> oh yes, I remember NG Bluetooth. Is it called? Yeah, there's a couple yeah. more modules, and it's also a good exercise, I think, to write a NetGraph module. As a junior developer, I'm not sure. But nevertheless, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's jump to our news roundup this week, where we have a bit of audio for you. Actually, an audio on FreeBSD guides, a quick guide on the FreeBSD Foundation website. And oh, here's Beastie going on with <laughs> headphones and listening to music, as we uh, all do occasionally. Okay, so the foundation here has the uh, 
post about audio, as you can imagine. And that starts with whether for music, communication, or notifications, audio is an important feature of many personal computer systems. In the new FreeBSD system, an audio card will need to be configured to process audio files and send them to the connected speakers, like the one you're listening to at the moment. Fortunately, setting up audio on FreeBSD is simple and straightforward. This guide will walk through setting up and configuring audio, connecting a pair of headphones, including pairing Bluetooth models, and testing the system's sound, all in under 10 minutes. Okay, so start the clock. First, setting up the sound card. FreeBSD supports a wide variety of sound cards. These are listed in the hardware compatibility notes for each FreeBSD release. And the hardware notes will list supported audio devices in which FreeBSD driver it uses. Start by identifying which driver will be needed for your specific audio device. So the device driver will need to be loaded to use the sound card. This can be easily done with KLD load. Some newer systems even automatically detect the sound driver now and loads uh, the proper one with, with the uh, dev match utility. But nevertheless, this is the way to uh, try it out. KLD load, in this case, SND underscore HDA, the high definition audio. Could be a different one, but this is the one they try here. The driver can be automatically loaded on boot by configuring slash boot slash loader.conf. Available sound modules are listed in the SND manual page. So you can run the man page for that. And if you want to, if you found the proper driver, uh, you can add that to loader.conf by saying SND underscore, in this case, HDA underscore load equals yes. Or you run the meta driver that tries them all and basically picks the one it, it finds um, by saying SND underscore driver underscore load equals yes. But I guess when you run this once and it found the one, you have the, the name of the module so you can replace this with the proper one without trying all the other ones. Okay, part two, setting up Bluetooth. If the audio output require a Bluetooth connection, further connections or configurations will have to be made to ensure Bluetooth support is loaded and configured. This section can be skipped if Bluetooth is not needed. Okay, so how do I load the Bluetooth support? Similarly, by, like we just covered, NetGraph modules. And this is NetGraph underscore UBT, because they didn't want to write, or didn't let you want to write Bluetooth all the time, so they abbreviated it to a nicely short UBT. If the Bluetooth device will be attached to the system during system startup, the system can be configured to load the module the same way by adding it to loader.conf. It's ng underscore ubt underscore load equals yes. Once the driver is loaded, connect the Bluetooth device. If the message uh, of the driver load was successful, output similar to something uh, that we are having uh, in varlog messages that starts with ubt0, for example, and it lists some vendor information or some interface names here that maybe you don't make much sense of, but there is something in the log. To start and stop the Bluetooth, use the driver startup script. It's service Bluetooth start UBT0. Okay, that's straightforward. Next up, finding other Bluetooth devices that you may have around. FreeBSD uses HC control to find and identify Bluetooth devices within RF proximity. One of the most common tasks is discovery of Bluetooth devices within RF proximity. This operation is called inquiry. Anyone out there? Inquiry and other HCI related operations are done using HC control to display a list of devices that are in range. Use HC control N, UBT0 HCI, and then inquiry, which is basically like a wireless access point scan, but for Bluetooth. Uh, note only devices that are set to discoverable mode will be listed, so otherwise it won't return anything. The beat do you, do you want to do you want to know about something really weird I used to have? No, which one? This is a complete sidetrack. Um, 
for for years, uh, my FreeBSD desktop at work had a always on light attached to it. It's like a lamp on my desk that I made. <clears throat> the lamp was on whenever I was within Bluetooth range of my desktop. And I had a process on FreeBSD that just did a scan looking for my Nexus 5. And whenever it saw the address, it would have turned the light on and the light would stay on while I was oh, there. Nice. And I had this light that maybe went off when I left. I was never Thomas really left sure, the building, but... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then when I got an iPhone, it stopped working because the iPhone is not as promiscuous with its Bluetooth, but it was great fun while it lasted. And there was like a tiny He's shell back. script just to keep this lamp on on my desk. Yeah, you should have a... Using this, this <laughs> you should have placed a camera somewhere to see if it uh, actually records the going out. I... I think I remember texting colleagues being like, is the is lamp it, yeah. on? Did I leave the light on? I don't on? know if this works. <laughs> Am I too close still? <laughs> okay, yeah, that's a nice way of um, uh, testing the Bluetooth. Um, yeah, the BD address is the unique address of a Bluetooth device, similar to the MAC address of a network card. And this can be assigned if needed for further communication with the device. So that also is done by HD control. And the rest of the article covers that, how to... Yeah, basically open the connection to that. Uh, but what about graphics card sound drivers? These little meshed up things. Modern graphics card often come with their own sound driver, which may be used as the default device. Uh, for example, run a D message and look for the PCM entries. You can see maybe here in this example, it's an NVIDIA card, but it also has a codec on it. And it also tells about real tech, which points to audio. So uh, the graphic card from NVIDIA has been enumerated before the sound card, the real tech. <clears throat> this can be changed to use the sound card as the default device with SysCTL. It's hwsnddefault underscore unit equals N, and N is the number of the sound device to prioritize. So in this case, four. You have to play a, bit, a little bit to see which oh, is the right number. There's also an, a way to switch automatically to headphones. So some systems may struggle with switching between audio outputs. Fortunately, FreeBSD allows for these to be specified in device.hints, and that can be configured for automatic switch over. And the foundation also provides the instructions how to do that. Testing the sound, well, that sounds easy, but well, there's a couple of things you can do. Um, cat def SNDs, that comes to mind, which gives you a couple of information about your device. And of course, then catting a file name to def dsp to let the speakers uh, blare a little bit uh, whatever file name contains and any file can be used for this and will produce noise through the connected audio device so be careful with headphones this way it might be loud cool that's a nice getting started uh, quick guide from the foundation and everyone should be able to get audio running on freebsd in no time yeah i i have found uh, if you install the socks package from uh from pack from ports um it has two tools called play and rec, which are really helpful for testing microphones mm. and audio output because play supports tons of audio files and you can just play something. And if, if the microphone works before your speakers work, then you can definitely have an audio file because you can use rec to record a file and then play it back. And it's a bit nicer than white noise. Yeah, definitely. Okay, next up, we have uh, a really interesting article from the author of the Eerie Linux WordPress site, um, who's called Kraleth. Kraleth? Um, you might think it is a no idea to have an article from someone called Eerie Linux, but the About page says it started as a project to learn more about the internals of Linux, and they've since become a BSD person. So it's good to know. 
I, they write, in 2017, I wrote a series of articles, one, two, three, four, on FreeBSD's famous version 4.11 and an experiment to get package source to get modern software running on it. But I've been interested in the history of my operating system of choice for longer than that. It's been half a decade since I visited my 4.x. My familiarity with FreeBSD has grown further and I dare to embark on the adventure to look at the very beginning. I had originally thought about doing this in a virtual machine. However, while dusting off an old laptop of mine to test 13-1 uh, beta releases on, I thought I might give an ancient FreeBSD a shot on that machine. It is an Acer Travelmate 272XC laptop that I got in 2003. It's not the oldest machine that I still have, but it is the last one with a working floppy drive. So I would install FreeBSD 1.0, mess with it a little, and write an article about it. Nothing too complicated. Should be done in a couple of hours on a weekend, except it turned out to be a, a little more complicated. And then there's the uh, Aragorn mean, uh, one does not simply walk into order, but it's one does not simply install FreeBSD 1.0. Prehistory. The dreams of being able to run BSD on home computers came true when Lynn and William Jolitz released 386 BSD 00 on March 1992. It is said to have been rather rough around the edges. This is a serious understatement. Uh, but many people contributed fixes and improvements, and so much a better version 0.1 could be released three months later. People continued to hand in patches, but a major disagreement on the future direction of the project had come to be. A group of users started to distribute an unofficial package kit of enhancements and fixes that had been declined by the project lead. Eventually, it became obvious that 386BSD as a whole was going nowhere, and the FreeBSD project was started to build a new system based on 386BSD and the patch kit. Around the same time, a different group set out to create NetBSD. Uh, and as an aside, um, at the FreeBSD Dev Summit in the last couple of weeks, there was a fireside chat with Jordan Hubbard that I've watched the start of, and he goes into a little more of the history about uh, what happened at the very start of the project with 386BSD and the different patch kits. And it's a real, real good watch. I'm sure we'll cover it in the future. Uh, FreeBSD 1.0 was eventually released in November 1993. For some context, only about a month later, id Software unleashed, get the reference, the Doom shareware onto the FTPs and it took the world by storm. If you had any interest in computer games at the time, you were guaranteed to be knee-deep in the dead at that point. I've never seen an actual FreeBSD 1.x CD. The oldest thing I have ever had in hand were some 2.x CDs. But fortunately, we have the Internet Archive, and somebody bothered to upload an image of Walnut Creek CD-ROM FreeBSD 1.0 disk. When I had that, I installed FreeBSD 13.1 on my old laptop so I could create the boot floppy. Yes, the actual 3.5-inch floppies. While CD-ROMs already existed, PCs could not yet boot off them. They gave me a lot of headaches because some of them haven't aged too well and have a lot of defective sectors. Fortunately, I kept one case of diskettes with about 50 of those around and eventually got enough good ones, or at least mostly good ones, to work with. FreeBSD 1.0 requires you prefer, prepare at least three floppies the boot floppy with the kernel, a rootfs floppy that contains a tiny file system, the CPIO floppy that control that holds a compressed mini system. Those three are DD'd onto diskettes. FreeBSD 1.0 comes in the form of various distribution sets, which can be installed. The required one is the binary distribution or bin dist, which consists of 81 files like bin underscore tgz.aa, 
ben underscore tgz.ab and so on. All but the last one. And so on. All but the last one, 253k in size for about 20 megabytes in total. The naming scheme suggests that these were created from big gzipped tarballs using the split. There's also an extract.sh script, which will concatenate all the parts, decompress the resulting tarball, and well, extract it. There's also object dist, objdist, which contains, except for the extracted script, a single file, uh, objtjs.aa, which is seven kilobytes in, in size. Its contents is the empty folders in user object hierarchy. I honestly don't understand what you need that for, but okay, it's there if you want it. Much more interesting is the source dist, the source distribution. It contains 76 tarball parts files, which are 16 megabytes combined, plus the usual extract script. This distribution set contains multiple tarballs for components like base, bin, contrib, games, and so on. GNU, which contains the compiler and other things, being by far the largest. I assume being able to pick uh, was meant for people that were low on disk space and not wanting to rebuild the system, but being interested in parts of the source code for reference. And then we have xfree86 and xfree source being a 22 megabytes and 20 megabytes in size and consisting of variable tarball fragments and several additional readme files each, plus the extract scripts. I definitely need my binary distribution. However, FreeBSD 1.0 does not support the CD drive in my laptop. The network card isn't supported. And of course there was no USB <laughs> yet. So I'm stuck transferring all the data via floppies, which unfortunately as mentioned above, I only have a single machine with a working drive. Because back in the day, the DOS formatted 12 floppies were a common thing. This is what FreeBSD tools expect you to use. You can of course use UFS formatted floppies and copy everything manually. Why would you want to ignore the helper script that the install system ships with? Let's first format a bunch of floppies. I used about 30 by running this command over and over again. UFS-F1440FD0. Then I mounted the file system and copied the files from the directory that I changed to before. When one disk is done, I check if all the files on the floppy are actually readable. There's no guarantee they are actually correct. But if there were no write errors and there are no read errors now, the chance is pretty high that they are. Copying the files off the floppy again is not much help since they are cached. To have the cache dropped, I unmount and remount the file system on the floppy before the copy operation. All fine, great, next floppy. Read error, too bad. Delete the corrupted file, put it onto the next Blech. floppy. A surprisingly large amount of my floppies were able to hold five parts just fine. But on some, I only managed to get as little as two because so many defective sectors would not allow for more. This was actually hard work. Eventually, I had my set of floppies ready for installation. Let's do it. It was what <laughs> we had back then. Uh, I, I didn't live through this. But, but yeah, yeah, floppies. Uh, okay. Floppies. Installation disk geometry. The first thing to do is to boot the machine off the kernel floppy, which also contains the boot code. Once the kernel booted, it will ask you to insert the file system floppy and hit enter. An installer script runs, which will ask you various questions. This is kind of what like uh, OpenBSD does today, but with much more excessive information and more questions to answer. I'm not gonna uh, document this unusual installation process completely for those who'd like to read it all. Oh, I'm going to document it all for those who'd like to read it, uh, maybe later. Uh, I sure did and comment on it. If it's too much text for you, feel free to skim skip. And we're going to skim skip because we don't have yeah. forever. Um, 
it has great things like cool let's do that <laughs> um in the middle of this um and it goes on to installation slicing and partitioning with disk uh writing the system to disk um and then it finishes with a d message about the the laptop they're using which i am amazed will run 13.1 and also for uh, one yeah um, huh. it must not be yeah I didn't think FreeBSD would run on that, but okay. Uh, and of course, there is a part two because that is not all. Um, part two was released on FreeBSD Day, and so they start with Happy FreeBSD, everyone. <laughs> Happy FreeBSD Day, everyone, which is the 19th of June. Uh, part one, I covered a little bit of the general information and preparation work before detailing the first part of the installation of FreeBSD 1.0 and real hardware. We stopped with having transferred a rump root file system and the kernel from two diskettes onto the hard drive. Part two covers the rest of the installation and we're going right where we left off. In case you want to play with FreeBSD 1.0 yourself, I've made an image of the drive and Z standard compressed it to make it as small as possible. It contains a bootable 1.0 image with bindist installed and both source and dest and x386 sources available too. I download it here and it is 20 megabytes compressed and 20 gigabytes uncompressed. I'm going to guess it's mostly zeros uncompressed. Uh, and rather than spoil this article for you, I'm just going to read the titles uh, so you can yeah. dig in. And so there are all the installation steps uh, completing the mini system, which deals with getting the rest of the system there, uh, installing the binary distribution, creating a backup of the system image, installing optional components, fun with keyboards, building FreeBSD, my favorite task, building a custom kernel, configuring system startup, playing with the FreeBSD ports collection, exploring packages, uh, user management, everyone loves some user management, dealing with system services, and then in conclusion, FreeBSD 1.0 is a very old operating system now, just a few months shy of being 29 years old. Almost three decades is a respectable part of a man's life. In the IT business, it's close to being an eternity. New technology came into being and went away again. You don't really talk about floppy disks at all anymore. Heck, there are machines that don't even have an optical drive. Try to ask the younger folks about ISA bus or hard drive jumpers. Those things are gone and if we're honest, rightfully so, but they were necessary steps in the development and evolution of IT as they enable us to build what we have today. They became invisible to most eyes, but if you look carefully, you can see that they left their legacy. Think about UFS, for example. It's still a capable file system, but it does meet the requirements of many workloads well, but that cylinder boundary stuff at the time was a necessity of design and creation and carved in stone for decades more to come. FreeBSD 1.0 is a pioneer's tool and in some regards that shows. There are many things that feel rather odd today. The path variable that is set in the scale profile dot files includes usr slash new and usr slash local, but not user local bin. The very simple default shell is a true pain to work with. I bet you it's CSH, uh, as it lacks each and every convenience feature we've grown used to for interactive shell use. But that was what we had back in the day. I still remember that it was a revelation for me when I got the first advanced shell that supported tab completion. Luckily, uh, this can fix today by installing better shells like ZSH. Many commands that I'm used to are missing, no sock stat until 3.2, or have been renamed over time at what is mount underscore MSS dot MFS DOS FS used to be called mount M underscore MS DOS before. And here on 1.0, it is in fact called mount underscore PCFS. 
from the couple of hours that I spent with it, I'd say it's been a satisfying journey. Would I want to do serious work? Not really, but I could within the limits that it has. Its shortcomings are what to be expected due to its age aside, I found something more important. Despite being different in many details, the system feels familiar. I've had to look, I've had a look at older Linux systems constantly thinking, good Lord, why? And sometimes even having trouble finding my way around. Solving those problems without asking DuckDuckGo even once is completely out of the question. Not so much here. It's all in the manual pages. And often enough, it's at least kind of what I'd expect it to be. It's not just an old system, it's an ancient one. This shows just how much there is a consistent philosophy and careful design behind FreeBSD. The character and spinet of the project that the founders formed proved strong enough to be perfectly recognizable three decades later. Thanks. This is uh, a great post. Uh, it finishes with a D message from the 1.0 system on the same laptop, which is, oh, maybe 20 lines long. Uh, and it really shows how much the hardware has changed. Oh, it's not fun. Yeah, of stuff. WD. Ah, cool. <laughs> uh, wow. It's certainly an, an interesting project. Yeah, it's, it seems like uh, a lot of fun with floppy drives. <laughs> cool. uh, if you read the FreeBSD 1 uh, install instructions, you can install from FTP um, or over parallel port or over serial port. Um, but I, I do think maybe the floppy drives were a stylistic <laughs> choice. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess you'd need a boot floppy, but once you have the three boot floppies, you can get the rest over the network. Yeah, for uh, that setup, yeah. And if people are complaining about installers that we have at the moment, look back at what we had back then. And so then it's all relevant or irrelevant. <laughs> Coming back to a more modern age, uh, we found uh, recently, more by accident, uh, that Hacker News is running FreeBSD. And this is on the post, uh, why is my VPN's IP blocked from Hacker News? Ask Hacker News. And in one of those answers, probably from Hacker News itself or some of the staff. We're recently running two machines, Master and Standby at M5 Hosting. All of Hacker News runs on a single box, nothing exotic. And here's a bit of output. They provide the CPU, but also here we say free, we read FreeBSD slash SMP, two packages, X for cores, X two hardware threads. Mirrored SSDs for data, mirrored magnetic for logs and UFS is mentioned there. And we get around 4 million requests a day. But that's interesting to see that this K8 class CPU can handle all that. And you would think Hacker News being a very, uh, as popular as it is with 4 million requests a day, that this machine is quite good at handling that. Would be nice to see the uptime or the, uh, you know, uh, the load average of that machine. So this is... Right, next up we have... Yeah. What? No, no, I was, I was done. <laughs> Next up, we have an article from The Register uh, about uh, TrueNAS. Enterprise strength FreeBSD-based TrueNAS releases v13.0. BSD vendor IX Systems has released the latest version of its FreeBSD-derived network attached storage OS, TrueNAS 13.0. The company now offers three separate operating system products, two based on FreeBSD, TrueNAS Core, which replaces FreeNAS, and the commercial TrueNAS Enterprise, available on the company's storage hardware, complementing them is a new Linux-based TrueNAS scale. It may not be a household name, but iX Systems Inc. is an established player that has been around for over 30 years. The company was originally founded as Berkeley Software Design Inc., BSDI, to sell commercial version of BSD Unix for 386 PCs. 
Over the decades, it's employed many notable Unix luminaries, and after various acquisitions, spin-offs, and reacquisitions, it now sells a range of storage-focused servers and develops a TrueNAS family of operating systems. Um, and then the article digs more into what TrueNAS is and FreeNAS is, which we have covered. Oh, all. yes, yeah. Um, and I think rolling to the end, um, they say, surprisingly, for a very BSD-centric company, um, uh, at TrueNAS scale is based on Debian Linux. On top is much the same middleware stack as the existing BSD-based offerings, but being based on a Linux kernel allows scale to do things, things difficult for FreeBSD, such as support Kubernetes and the Gluster distributed file system. Scale is not intended to rival Linux-based NAS OSs such as Open Media Vault. Rather, it is the company's entry into enterprise distributed storage market, which SUSE recently left. IX Systems told The Reg that TrueNAS deployments grew over 70% during the pandemic, and it is predicting predicting a $100 million run rate. It already has 16,000 TrueNAS scale installations, and it's adding 100% per quarter. Many companies have found that the freemium sales model can be different, difficult, but IX Systems' model of giving away the unsupported version but spelling, selling hardware the professional product pre-installed seems to be working out, and is optimistic that scale will grow strongly and help it reach new markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Cool. Good news from that, I would guess. I'm sure. You, I'm sure you could do Kubernetes and FreeBSD. Someone just has to. Yeah, uh, yeah. In that uh, space. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll maybe have something in the future about this. Uh, Beastie Bits is what we had never had this much about in recent uh, recordings, so we should get a bit of news here in quick succession. The first is notable OpenBSD news you may have missed. In the uh, 28th of uh, June edition. So there's a hackathon going on at the moment in Bruges, Belgium. And I guess we will have more reports from what individual OPSD developers are doing there. Uh, the other one is a new grab dash dash null option been added to grab to cover and uh, uh, print an ASCII null byte after the file name to make the output unambiguous even in the presence of file names with funny characters. And there are adventures in PrivZap with Xlock, which is a uh, uh, yeah, commit message here. Um, implement privilege separation in Xlock so that the Xlock, is it a screensaver? No, it's mostly a locking utility. So in case you run from your machine, then it locks. Um, that has privilege separation now. And we should cover the BSD or the OpenBSD Dev Summit at Hackathon in uh, Belgium in a future episode a bit more detailed. Okay, next up on in BSD bits we have a refined BSD black theme. Uh, this is a black refined BSD icon theme for Dragonfly, FreeBSD, Ghost, Midnight, NetBSD, Nomad BSD, and OpenBSD. Um, and it is a really nice set of icons which are white on a black background for the refined EFI bootloader. Uh, and then the README that we have linked will give an explanation of how to install these menu entries for Refind um, and also gives attribution from all over the place. It's really cool. It's a Haiku logo. Yeah, that's really cool. Yep. Uh, more news from OpenBSD is OpenBGPD 7.4 has been released and it's on the OpenBSD journal from the SMTP takes precedence over HTTP. Where would they be without BGP department? 
uh, we wouldn't blame you if you slipped under if that slipped under your radar that OpenBGPD 7.4 was released, since it doesn't appear to have been mentioned on the OpenBGPD website yet. However, the release notes may be found in a mailing list post they listed there. And are there any notable things they implemented there? Uh, the release includes the following changes. Implement max communities filter to limit the number of allowed communities, X communities and large communities. They fixed TCP MD5 support on Linux systems. Uh, they fixed the insertion of additional non-transitive extended communities when standing and when sending out the prefixes and relax IP address limitations by allowing prefixes in 240/4. Excellent. Okay, and last up we have a hotfix from GhostBSD. Uh, GhostBSD 22.06.18 ISO is now available. This new ISO contains a critical fix and software updates. Uh, and for details, see the change log below. Uh, and there are two bugs fixed in the changelog. Um, there is an installation error, device busy, which I'm sure if you were hitting it was upsetting. And a second bug, cannot install GhostBSD on Dell PC Legacy or UEFI. Uh, and then they continue with links to download. Um, the minimum system requirements for GhostBSD are a 64-bit processor, four gigabytes of RAM, 50 gigabytes of hard drive, and a network card. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right, jumping into feedback and questions this week. We have feedback and questions, but if you want to send us more, and we certainly won't uh, object that decision, uh, if it's good feedback, that is, uh, send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv and it will appear in a future episode. Like the one from Brad here, which uh, is about a jails question. And uh, Brad writes, hello, Benedict, Alan, Tom, and JT. Long-time listener of the show since before 2014. Oh, wow, that's really long. So thanks for keeping with us. Uh, enjoy all the information you guys pass along and look forward to each week's episode. Great. That's really good to hear. As a home user, I have been using FreeBSD for file storage and backup sharing our pieces of the datasets over at Samba, NFS, and iSCSI. Cool. But it has always running on the host server directly. It wasn't until a new, a few months ago that I started to play with FreeBSD jails. Since I've gotten more comfortable with it, I have started to consolidate some things like web servers, database servers, and similar into my main storage server to better utilize its hardware and save some power costs, have costs having less hardware turned on. Excellent, in particular these times. Um, I also seems much... It also seems much simpler to just set back up the jails and PF config to move to a new host or recover something bad in a jail from a snapshot or even save time if I decide to reinstall the host OS fresh. I have been thinking about jailing all of the things but cannot find much good info about it actually as a good idea or not. I'm thinking about letting the host server manage my ZFS pools. Of course, then just let PF on the box directly or direct all incoming traffic to jails running on the host while null mounts the need data set into the jails. I do this now for the internal web servers, but not sure about my other services. Are some considered no-nos for jails up? Uh, I'm sure a lot of them could be working, but I'm curious, should you do it even if it's possible? So here the list is Samba, NFS, iSCSI, DHCP, DNS, and WireGuard as a host for my family's phones and laptops to connect back home, Unify controller as well. Oh, is it okay or even suggested to run these jailed? Can you recommend any sources to read up on the surprises I might encounter running as jails instead of a bare metal? Nothing other than WireGuard will be public facing, not even the websites. They're only needed for my family, so we just VPN back to the house if we need to access it. Uh, good. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. 
Do it. Yeah, do it definitely. A good source of <laughs> things you may stumble upon is Dan Langell's blog, where he posts a lot of configs that he does with his jails, and he's a very, uh, pro yeah, frequent or very uh, highly used uh, jail, uh, or he uses jails very often and very uh, in many services. So you may find a lot of uh, how tos there, and also gotchas that he found also and worked around with the help of the community. So that's a good way I would suggest to go. Otherwise, FreeBSD forums. Yeah. And uh, yeah, typically there's a lot of information out there. So definitely go go jails as much as possible. And for WireGuard, yeah, I've I... seen configs that also work in jails. Yeah. Yeah, I can't see a problem of running all these services side by side in jails. Mm -hmm. um, apart from the, the ordering of access between the jails, if, if that is the thing you want. Um, all of the network services are going to end up on the same network segment unless you deliberately make them not. And so it might make sense to run them on the same jail. It might not. Um, some of this could just be more work than it's worth, but it seems like a fun thing to do. You should do it. It's Brad. a good exercise, yeah. Write, write a blog post. Tell us mm -hmm. how it goes. Yeah, help other people. We'll have more people <laughs> this way. Posts. Excellent. Okay. Um, next up, we have a question from Freezer. Uh, and Freezer writes, Dear Alan, Benedict, and JT. Where are you in this? Okay, I'm not hurt. I'm not hurt by this. Okay. It's fine. Uh, I became a FreeBSD, an OpenBSD addict, after I broke my long last relationship with Debian during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now I run FreeBSD on my main laptop and cloud servers, OpenBSD over and old Acer netbook. Do you remember the netbook <laughs> era? I do. After discovering FreeBSD, I started listening to BSD Now TV, but so far I just reached episode 372. Well, it's still maybe, decent. Maybe I've not been on an episode yeah. yet. Uh, starting from, I think, episode 200. Mm. Not sure. I love the free software culture, but in the end, BSD, in the end, looks like the BSD licenses are doing a better job of making sure all parties involved are happy. I'm just passionate about informatics, which leads me to have a small FreeBSD virtual a VPS running a, a small capsule where I mostly like to share my journey on Gemini and FreeBSD and OpenBSD. Actually, I had to shut down my previous capsule on DigitalOcean since they dismissed official support for FreeBSD Droplet and therefore I dismissed them. Now I'm building FreeBSD-based capsule on Vulture. This time I decided to share VPS with another dude involved in a Gemini project and I'd like to put into action some restrictions. For instance, I'd like to whitelist certain file extensions, uh, JPEG, PNG, text, Gemini, or blacklist file depends on it works. I'd like to put a limitation for the maximum weight allowed for uploading any file, quotas for each user. This is the only topic I found from the handbook. I read the handbook several times, but I couldn't find anything related. Also looks like SFTP can't handle such requirements. I did not have idea what I should do if this was feasible. Any suggestions or recommendations are welcome. Keep up with your great show, Freezer. Um, I think some of these things are not going to be related to FreeBSD. I think that the whitelist of file extensions for the Gemini server are going to be part of the Gemini server's configuration. Mm. Um, and FreeBSD is not going to have visibility into this. So for a whitelist or a blacklist, it's not going to be able to integrate. A good comparison would be doing this for Nginx if you're running that as a web server. And so you want to look at the configuration documentation for your, the Gemini server you're running. Um, 
you could definitely put limitations on uploaded files from FreeBSD by giving the upload a system a, a tight quota. But again, I think it's probably a server configuration thing. You could definitely limit the total amount of stuff uploaded. Um, but I don't think these are related to FreeBSD. Uh, a good way to actually look to figure out a difference here is to search for setting this up on, on Linux and then trying different Linux distributions. And if all the advice is the same, um, it will work on FreeBSD. You also find examples for Linux and just try them on FreeBSD until things fall apart. And then you start finding the things where there's a difference between the two platforms. Mm, yeah, at this point, it's uh, not too much of a difference. Yep, but anyway, thanks for this question. And uh, yeah, keep up with the, <laughs> with the watching. Uh, eventually you will catch up. Okay, let's check the last uh, feedback. A different Brad here with a drive question. That different Brad writes, my two three terabyte spinning Rust drives were pulled out of my TrueNAS box when I upgraded to four terabyte drives and put in my desktop system. These are data drives, a pool for large stuff that I don't want on my primary pool, which is mirrored pair of SSDs. So I stuck them in and created the mirrored pair, but I just wrote the pool to the drives. So I get the messages below, ADA3, primary GPT table, corrupt or invalid. And we've seen those, yeah. So I wanted to get a sanity check before I trash the pool. Here is what I have determined I need to do. So they pull detach. Uh, oh, nice. NCC1764. Nice pool name. Def ADA3. Is that a Star Wars reference? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, then gpart create dash s gpt def ADA3 gpart add t freebsd swap partition. Yeah, 4K sector size. I have 2 gigabyte size. That's perfectly enough. Uh, for def 83 and you do another g part add for the freebsd zfs part with a 4k sector drive excellent and that also is def 83 and last thing is you do z pool attach uh, that disk to your ncc1764 pool so at that point i let the pool reservable then another rinse repeat with ada4 does that sound reasonable? It does to me. Just make sure that uh, nothing happens while the pool is resilvering and it only has one disk in there. Um, but other than that, seems fine for me, especially the commands you provided. These look very sane to me. I would trust Benedict. I, I don't know. Hard drives are terrifying. Yeah, I mean, at this point, <laughs> it, it could happen that during the resilver, well, not during the resilver, but during the time, uh, only one disk is connected to the pool, that this one disk dies, but you would have to be very unlucky if that would happen. Um, but for the gpart commands there, that looks fairly uh, good to go with that. Okay, that is what we have for you today. Um, any last words from you? No, this was, an, this was an excellent show. I'm looking forward to all the FreeBSD 1.0 content that's going to come out next year in FreeBSD's 30th Ooh, year. Ooh, yeah. We will definitely have something special there. Okay. Uh, you heard it here first, of course, and you will hear future news in the BSD space also every week. And we'll be happy to provide them for you uh, just as they come out. Thank you for listening. <laughs>